When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome back to Working Overtime, a show where we focus on the creative process. I'm your host, June Thomas. And I'm your other host, Karen Hahn. Hey Karen, how are you doing today? I'm so great because I get to rip it up with you. Oh my goodness, rip it up. We're ripping it up. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, so what is the topic of the day for today? So today I wanted to talk about writer's block, specifically how the Apple TV Plus show Dickinson portrayed it. But before we get to that, I'm curious, is writer's block something that has afflicted you? It's a good question and sort of funny because I feel like I never think of it as experiencing writer's block. Like when I'm sitting Mm. at my computer and just staring at my screen and not getting any words out, I'm never like, oh, I have writer's block. I'm just sort of zoned out. You know what I mean? Or I'm just sort of sitting there thinking, I wonder why I'm not getting any work done. So I guess that's a long way of saying that I do experience it. Um, And I feel like all of us do to some degree. Uh, What about yourself? Very similar. I've definitely blown deadlines or not written when I was supposed to be writing. So technically, I suppose I have. But I associate the term writer's block with those writers who are just absolutely, totally stuck. People Mm -hmm. who, you know, seem to lose the ability to produce words. People like Fran Lebowitz or Joseph Mitchell, like those extreme circumstances. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad to say I have never had to deal with an issue on that scale. But I also (laughs) think that that kind of extreme situation is rare because most people who confront an inability to write on that scale would move on to another career. Like they, <laughs> they wouldn't be a blocked writer anymore. They'd be you yeah. know, a functioning apprentice plumber or whatever. But, you know, even if it's not your job um, and you don't need to do it to like pay your bills, that doesn't mean it's fun not to be able to do something that you enjoy. Mm-hmm. So it does, it's good to have strategies yeah. for how to overcome it. Have you ever developed any strategies to defeat whatever we'll call our very, hopefully, minor uh, (laughs) brushes with writer's block? I would say that my strategies are pretty similar to anything else that you would find in a pretty quick Google search of how to get over writer's block. Like, I really wonder if there's a better solution out there. But for right now, the best way that I've found to defeat writer's block or at least kind of get around it is to just do something different for a while, mm-hmm. whether it's like going to go take a walk, going to even just get a glass of water, do a puzzle, play a video game for a while or like watch an episode of TV. Just letting your brain kind of reset or do something else is an important thing to do. Um, but that said... If I'm on deadline or I feel really pressured, sometimes I do just still sit there and think, I'm going to get it done. It's going to happen, which is not advice that I would really recommend to anyone. Yeah. Yeah. I agree that like just giving up for a brief period and just doing something else, that's, I think, the thing that's been most effective Mm -hmm. for me. Another technique uh, is to just start writing, you know, not full-on morning pages, it just doesn't matter what you write Mm -hmm. kind of level of just writing. But, you know, 
coming at it with an attitude that you're not trying to fix your writer's block problem. You're just like starting the engine again, you yeah. know, just warming up. And I think that's been pretty effective too. And other people have mentioned that to me. Mm-hmm. All right, let's take a break. But when we come back, I want to evaluate the advice about getting over writer's block that was dispensed on the Apple TV Plus show, Dickinson. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hey, working listeners, in this episode, we're talking about advice from a TV show. So we're wondering, have you developed any techniques or strategies after watching a show or a movie? Or maybe you've conquered writer's block and would like to tell us how you did it. Share with us by sending an email to workingatslate.com. Or better yet, give us a call and leave us a message at 304-933-WORK. That's 304-933-9675. We'd love to hear from you. So, Karen, the other day I was watching the TV show Dickinson, which, in case anybody hasn't seen it, it's a sort of comedic take on the early life of the 19th century poet Emily Dickinson, which is based kind of loosely, but based on her life. And and there was an episode in which Emily was struggling with writer's block. And there's a clip that we can listen to. But first, I should explain that in the show, Emily is basically possessed 
by poetry. Like she's <laughs> constantly scribbling down lines that seem to come to her, you know, with very little effort. And then in season two, episode four, which is called The Daisy Follows Soft to the Sun, that spigot of inspiration suddenly dries up. She gets up one morning, she settles into write and nothing. And so after struggling for a bit, she goes downstairs and her mother finds her complaining to Maggie, the family maid. And Emily is played by Hayley Steinfeld and Maggie by Darlene Hunt. And apologies in advance to Irish listeners for Hunt's accent. <laughs> I'm empty. Dried up. Void. A useless husk. She's got writer's block. So after we've established that she's got writer's block, she takes action. She does what you suggested earlier, Karen, and she does something different. She goes birding with her father and that helps for a minute, but it doesn't really solve the situation. It doesn't. It, it's just brief. But then they run in, as you do when you're in Amherst in the 1800s, <laughs> they run into Frederick Law Olmsted, uh, who's played in this case by Timothy Simons, also known as Jonah on Veep. And Olmsted is in Amherst designing a park. And when Emily asks him if he's ever been blocked, he says he hasn't. Let's hear from the show. So what do you do when you don't know what to do? When I don't know? Yeah. I wait. How long? That's nice. Huh? As long as it takes. Months, years. You must have so much patience. I'm making art that will last for centuries. Generations to come will enjoy my parks. My parks could save democracy itself, so can't rush that. Do you ever get stuck? No, I refuse to be stuck. All right, let's pause there, not only to wonder at Olmsted's uh, self-confidence, <laughs> but also to, to ponder his advice. Because on the surface, I'm you know, pretty convinced what's more important, making the best possible version of the work or sending something imperfect out into the world just to you know, meet a deadline. And Olmsted thinks that you should keep going until you get it right. But that's not the most practical approach. And something that really struck me afterwards was it really fails to acknowledge the importance of the back and forth with a collaborator, an editor mm -hmm. or a producer or whoever. If you strive too hard for perfection and you don't share your work, you're not able to get that benefit. So, okay, what do you think of Olmsted's advice? I think he has a valid point in that sometimes you do have to be more generous with yourself and allow yourself time to process your thoughts or figure out exactly where a story is heading. But at the same time, I agree with you, June, in that it's also sort of impractical advice when you're not in a solo bubble or otherwise yeah. have a deadline of some sort. Sometimes you just don't have the luxury of time. I don't think anyone in my circle has that luxury, especially because time is money. And yeah. sometimes you don't have money either. So you just don't sometimes it's just not a luxury that's afforded to you. Yeah, I, I imagine, I, and I, this may, obviously this isn't always true, but whenever I come across people who get in those, like they basically are stuck for years because mm -hmm. they're kind of paralyzed by knowing that the work is not as great as it could yeah. be. I just think, must have a lot of money. I mean, yeah. that, it's, it's kind of terrible. I absolutely that, agree. That's though. my response, but that's where my, where I go and 
I, I'm going to have to learn to atone for that, but yeah. <laughs> I don't think it needs atoning. It's just true. Or if you're not producing any work for several years, the only way that you can really do that is if you have a cushion, a financial cushion to fall back on. Agreed. I want to say, though, that's not the end of Olmsted's insight. So talking with Olmsted helps Emily get out of her head. But then she realizes that she's anxious. She's given one of her poems to an editor, and now that's made her frozen. She's blocked because the editor has power over her creative work, which is a kind of a new thing for her. Mm -hmm. And the way she puts it, being a poet, is, I'm the daisy and he's the sun. And Olmsted says she cannot let that happen. Let's hear. Opinion is a flitting thing. It's a hideous distraction from the beauty of your craft. Okay. Then maybe I shouldn't try to have an audience at all. Maybe fame is dangerous. I mean, I gave one poem to one man, and now I have writer's block. The audience is irrelevant. The work itself is the gift, not the praise for it. Understand that? And you'll understand true mastery. You're right. I know you're right, but how do I do it? Simple. Refuse to be the daisy and start being the sun. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that's, you got to admit, that was a pretty romantic moment. I, and to be clear, it wasn't a romantic scene in <laughs> the show, but that feels like, oh my God, imagine like having a conversation on that level about creativity. That's so hot, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's for a different podcast. Exactly, exactly. Um, that's for working thirst. Oh, I mean, not a bad idea. <laughs> Coming soon to a podcast player for <laughs> you. All right, so let's talk about that advice. So Emily seems pretty convinced, and, and I was like all, you know, ready to like, yeah, go, Emily. But is she right? Like, yeah, again, maybe on a completely ideal level, the work is its own reward, but once again, to be this practical person, mm -hmm. I'm not sure. I don't think that it's praise that motivates creative people. I yeah. mean, it's nice, nice to have, but it's also a desire for engagement, for feedback, for, you know, the back and forth of making something and putting it out to the world. What do you think? I think you can't work solely because you want someone else to engage with your work, whether it's yeah. in the more collaborative sense that you describe or for praise or for fame, which I think are very distinct entities, because you can never know how your work is going to resonate with people now or in the future. Um, at the same time, I don't think the audience is irrelevant because what you make is going to be consumed by somebody and that kind of outside judgment will change the conversation around your work, whether you want it to or not. Like I'm thinking of... When I was um, studying art history in college, we were talking about how exhibits are laid out will affect how people view the art. And it also is, there's no way to create an exhibit that isn't somehow touched by what the curator is doing. There's no yeah. way to just present that artwork. And then there's also artists who like weren't appreciated in their time, but have become sort of rehabilitated over time and become more appreciated. And that's something that you don't have any control over as an artist, but probably would find valuable. Like... 
I don't know. This is so stupid, but I think about that like Doctor Who episode, you know, where he goes back in time and meets Van Gogh, and like in his yes. time he was not appreciated at all. But then he takes him to the future and he sees like how much people love his artwork, and it is very affecting. And yeah. I mean, the episode ends depressingly anyway. But the point being, yeah. that's not something that you as an artist have control over again, and can have positive results. Like you can't totally shun an audience, and there's no way to not have an audience unless you really mm-hmm. are like, here's my diary entry. It's in my diary. It's padlock. No one will ever read this. I'll burn these entries at, like when I die or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And then <laughs> you don't have to worry about writer's block. Yeah. I guess, you know, for the sake of, you know, to make a show in 30, 40 minutes, whatever the mm-hmm. length was, one of the great things about Dickinson is it, it does uh, vary a lot. So, you know, it's nice that they've got as much time as they need to share yeah. their message. But for the sake of TV, they were able to say, this is the secret. I think, in fact just as there are lots of different things at different times that you're struggling with a failure to get done the work that you need to get done. Different things work at different times. There are all kinds of different motivations for doing Mm -hmm. creative work. You know, I think one of the things that is most effective at driving you to do something when you're tired or you're just not in the mood is kind of thinking about how it will sicken your nemesis or how it will will impress someone that you want to impress. And that is so shallow and something that's so so embarrassing. But it's so motivational, man. Mm -hmm. You just think, well, if I can get this done before you know, that person gets their thing in the world or <laughs> this is really going to make them mad when they see that. Like, that is the way I've to get your I've never tried that, done. but now I will. Oh, <laughs> pick a nemesis and, and just like, yeah, that will clear writer's block. That's it's it's so like, funny. Uh, yeah, it's like inhaling, uh, you know. <laughs> something to clear your nose it, it's 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 really i feel like that's a whole other episode like the benefits yes. of having a nemesis to your creative yes. process we'll return to nemesis <laughs> on another episode but for this week i think we might be done if you like the show don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and if you have ideas for things we could do better or questions you'd like us to address we would love to hear from you you can send us an email at working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK if you'd like to support what we do sign up for slate plus at slate.com slash working plus you'll get bonus content including exclusive episodes of how to do it and big mood little mood and you'll be supporting what we do right here on working it's only one dollar for the first month sign up at slate.com slash working plus big thanks to our producers cameron drews and kevin bendis we'll be back on sunday with a brand new episode of working and in two weeks we'll have another working overtime perhaps about nemeses (laughs) until then get back to work
save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in store and on Menards.com. Save 